for me, I had to come to the place where my longing to see him move was greater than my fear of failure and looking stupid. Because of my background, because of my upbringing, I was, I was just desperate not to be humiliated anymore. And I had to come to the place of, Lord, if I make an absolute twit of myself, I, I want to do it as worship for you. Hey, and welcome back to another episode of Leadership Conversations with Nikki Gumbel. Today, we have the fun-loving Mike Pilavachi on with us. Mike is the pastor of Soul Survivor Watford, and for 26 years of Mike's life, he and his team ran a festival for youth in the UK that saw tens of thousands of young people come to know Jesus. He has written a number of books, including Everyday Supernatural and his latest called Lifelines. And I just love Mike. Somehow he has the ability to make me laugh, sometimes cry, and then he makes a profound statement that I just can't get out of my mind. His points always sit with me for a very long time. If you've never been exposed to Mike, you're in for a real treat today. Let's jump in right now with him and Nikki. I am thrilled to be here with Mike Pilavacci, MBE. Uh, Mike is... Uh, we've, well, we have been friends for certainly decades. I don't like to say quite how long, but uh, Mike is a hero and um, an inspiration to so many countless thousands of people through Soul Survivor and now through his church that he co-founded, co- Soul Survivor Watford, and um, well-deserved honour from the Queen for his ma- massive contribution to young people in the UK and all around the world. And uh, Mike, you're such a busy person and we're thrilled that you're, you're here. So um, Mike, first of all, how are, you, how, are you, how, are you, how are you coping with lockdown? Well, a, a lot of lockdown has been very nice for me because I'm an introvert. Uh, but I must admit this last one, this, these last, couple of months have been tougher um i think doing okay uh trying to pastor a church by remote control as you i'm sure know is very interesting but we've got an amazing wonderful team that have just served their socks off and um i I think we're we're in a fairly good place obviously praying that um this finished, this comes to an end soon and the vaccines work and everything. But but doing okay, I think, under the circumstances. You're doing more than okay. I listened to your podcast, Take Heart, and I think it's absolutely phenomenal, as well as all the books that you've written. I think this podcast is so inspiring. You you and Andy Croft, you sp- both of you have such an amazing way of speaking and such uh, wonderful insights into what's going on at the moment. Well, I think Andy's the one that has the, the, the great insights. I'm not sure. Um, well, I commend to anyone if not already listening to Take Heart. I, I tend to listen to it on, like, Saturday. I try and have a catch-up and listen to, to you and Andy and your insights, John's Gospel and all the other things that you're speaking about. That's really, really amazing. Mike, if you'd, I, I'd love to go back to the very beginning, your childhood. Um, I gather when you when you had your I, I heard that when you had your first day at school, you had a, a pretty um, sort of out of well extraordinary experience. It was awful. Extraordinary isn't the right. Awful is the word. Um, my parents em- emigrated to this country from Cyprus, and um, uh, I was the first 
born of their kids and it never occurred to them to teach me English. And up until I was five, because in those days you started school at five. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't connect with any English kids because my parents didn't know how to connect with anyone. And so my first day at school, I had no warning, no warning. I could feel something in the atmosphere. And my mum took me to school and there were all these, what seemed to me like screaming hooligans running around talking a language I didn't understand. And then I realized my mum was leaving me there and I screamed my head off and the teacher had to drag me from my mum. And what happened was for, for the first, I mean, it was agony the first months. I didn't understand what was going on, what anyone was saying. And I went in on myself. And so for actually a long, quite a while, at the break times and lunch times, I would walk up and down the playground on my own while everyone else was playing. And I'd go and hide behind a wall sometimes so people couldn't see my shame or go and lock myself in a toilet at lunchtime. Um, and I, you know, lots of things you remember, you know, like I remember once the teacher, I could see the teacher trying to encourage a couple of the boys to ask me to play football with them. And they reluctantly came over and asked me and I said, no. And I remember, you know, them walking away quietly relieved. And a little bit, it's funny how these things stay with you. Because for a long, long time, I always felt the outsider. I always felt I wasn't wanted. I always felt different. And it's been a journey of the Lord healing me of that, really. And when did that start, Mike? When did your faith start? Oh, did you always have faith? Did you have faith growing no, up? Or no, no. It's funny. When I was 14, Nikki, this is absolutely true. I wrote an essay in my English class, the title of which was Why I'm Not a Christian. Huh. And um, I found out later that Bertrand R Russell also wrote an essay with the same title. <laughs> um, I won't comment on the... Um, and, and basically, God's sense of humour, a year later, I became a Christian because I discovered what Christianity was. I was... My parents were Greek Orthodox atheists, and so huh. I was well. And two months before my 16th birthday, I gave my life to Jesus. So I read a little booklet called Becoming a Christian uh, by John Stott. Hmm. And I remember it was the 15th of January. I went to a hill called Barn Hill near where I lived um, in near Wembley, and I knelt down on the wet grass and I prayed the prayer at the end. And I got up, I didn't feel any different, but I knew everything had changed. And so I knew what I was doing. I'd investigated it very, very closely. And, and first of all, the Lord started to heal me. And he has been all the way through just with his love direct, his unconditional, unmerited love and grace and mercy. And then he's put people in my life who also, for some reason, <clears throat> love me unconditionally. Hmm. And I've had a lot of healing through that relationship with him and relationship with others. You know, when it's when it goes badly with other people, it's really bad. But when it goes well, there's nothing more healing um, and there's nothing more liberating. So that's my story. In the <clears throat> Mike, when I first met you, you were an accountant. So yeah. how, how, how did how did that happen? Oh, completely by accident. Um, um, I. I, I went to, down the road from you, Harvey Nichols Knightsbridge, and uh, I got a job, I thought it was a summer job in the accounts department after I finished university. 
And um, I ended up staying for seven years. Um, and uh, I, I, I worked for them. And then I became the accountant for Pearl and Dean, the cinema advertising company for a year. And then um, I, I just knew that I just wanted to serve Jesus. I really did. And I ended up at St. Andrew's Chorley Wood. And I went there because I was still really hurting. And I heard that there they prayed for people and things happened. And I knew I needed healing. And I never for a moment ever thought that they asked me. One day, David Pitches asked to see me, the vicar. And uh, I thought he dis discerned my secret sins. But I realized that he didn't have the gift of discernment. And instead of discerning my secret sins, he's a he asked me if I'd give up my job and be the youth worker. And of course... I said, yes. And, and just the thing there was when, when he asked me, I left his house, I left the vicarage and I went to Chorleywood Common. And I remember I sat on the log and the prayer I prayed was, Lord Jesus, there's one thing I ask is when I'm old and gray and in my rocking chair, there might be men and women serving you. And I would know that I had a little part to play in their lives. And and kind of that's been my main longing, calling, passion ever since in ministry. That that youth group kind of, it, it grew into a new wine youth event and then it became eventually Soul Survivor, and which which you ran, I think from 1993 to till 2019. Um, yes. Uh, and, uh, and like, thousand i mean 30,000 people uh, um coming to these summer festivals and i i uh, often you know all the clergy and people coming through here i always ask people what was the big the, the turning point for you in your life and almost like 95% of them say soul survivor that's that's been the thing that where people came to faith where people received a calling to ministry where people uh, got ordained in the church i mean just the thousands and thousands of people that who were influenced through that did you have any kind of concept that that your that it was going to have this impact uh, not not at all i mean we we didn't know what we were doing and we made lots of mistakes but do you know the amazing thing is from the beginning the Lord was present and the Lord always seemed to overrule our mistakes. And um, if God has done stuff, it's, it's his grace. It certainly wasn't us. You know, it, it, it's his utter sheer grace. And, you know, when God has his hand on something for the season that he does, it, 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 I know it's funny you think to say, but in one sense, it's easy. In another sense, you do have to work hard and you do have to, but it's like the number of times I've, I've looked back and said, how on earth do you, did you do that, Lord? Hmm. How, did, how, did, how did it work out like that? You know, even at our finishing, you know, we knew the Lord said that we were to close in 2019. And How you know, did we, you know that, Mike? And that's what everybody wants to know. How did you know? I mean... You've got this successful festival, the most successful festival, certainly in the UK. I mean, it's like absolutely massive. All these thousands of young people. And you decide in 2019, we're not going to do a festival in 2020 or 2021. Like no festivals have happened in 2020 and 2000. Everyone else heard the Lord say 
go ahead next year. And you heard, um, stop well, it. And you, you were the only one who got it right. No, I'd love, Nikki, I would love to answer that question by saying, the Lord told me COVID is coming. <laughs> I would lo I'd love to put that in my book. Um, <laughs> but it wouldn't be true at all. I mean, it, it's funny. God does more behind your back than he does in front of your face. And we didn't know. We, have, we had no idea. We just, it became more and more obvious that we, we kept, I remember one day I said to the others, do you think the Lord is saying we're meant to stop? And we looked at each other and it, it was confirmed in all sorts of ways. Um, I, I, was, I was in a, in a church in South Africa, not in South Africa, in New Zealand, in Auckland. They knew nothing when we were thinking about it. And we just about decided. And um, this lady came up to me and she said, I don't know if this makes any sense, but I see you as a trapeze artist, which is ridiculous. <laughs> and, and it's like you're on your trapeze and the Lord's saying, if you want to catch the next trapeze, you have to let go of the one you're holding now. Huh. And saying, trust me, let go of this trapeze and you will catch the next one. Trust me, I'm in this. She had no idea what we were just coming to decide. And we had w words like that. And in the end, it was absolutely unanimous in our team. And what was wonderful, looking back, is 2019, we had um, 32,500 kids came because the youth groups that sometimes would come every other year because it was the last one they came. It was the perfect ending. Yes. It was wonderful. We saw so many come to the Lord. And if we had decided to close a year later, we would never have finished because we'd have gone bankrupt. You know, doing youth work, there's not a lot of spare cash. And as it was, we finished, and it was the Lord going ahead of us. Amazing. And it, you know, I often, I feel, you must feel the same, a bit like the disciples did, eh? How did you do that, Lord? You know, with the feeding of the 5,000, nine months wages, how are we gonna, I don't know, whoa, a little boy's picnic. How did you do that, Lord? And Honestly, I, I, so often I feel just like them. Um, in that but way. Mike, it was an extraordinary decision uh, because you, I mean, you had, that was, in a sense, your identity is leading this massive movement and you're saying, I'm going to stop. And, and it's so hard, isn't it, when you're, I, I mean, I'm not, I, I'm, I know your identity is not tied up in what you do, but, but for, for, for so many leaders, uh, our identity is so closely connected with what we do that to actually lay down your, you know, your title, your ministry, your, your, the thing that everybody knows you for, and to, and to let go of that power that you have, there must you must have thought that that's a hard thing to do. I, honestly, Nikki, hand on heart, I, I don't want to sound anyway. I'll say it's I'll say it honestly. It wasn't. It really wasn't. Um, I'm. I'm going to be 63 in Feb in March, and it's exhausting leading all those fest festivals and everything. And I was tired. I, I was tired. I would have carried on if the Lord had said. But also, the honest, honest truth is, I was interviewed by someone who said, um, 
um, how, how, how will you feel when Soul Survivor finishes? I mean, what, exactly that. And I, my honest answer was, it will be absolutely fine because Jesus isn't stopping. And, and the honest truth is, I haven't had one moment of regret. I look back with a lot of fondness and no regret. And I love what I'm doing now. I love it. I love, I love focusing on pastoring up our church. I, uh, the team I work with are, are the best team I've ever had to work with. And I've had some great teams. And we love each other. We, we serve together. We're seeing folk coming to Jesus. We're seeing, we're involved in people's lives. We're seeing people being raised up. What more could you want? And we have a lot of fun as we're going. So, the, you know, I wondered, because everyone was saying to me, oh, you're going to regret it. You're gonna, oh, you're going to struggle. And I thought, oh, maybe I don't know myself. Maybe they know me better. I will. But it, it just hasn't, it hasn't been like that. I love what happened. But, and also, when you know, when you absolutely know God has said, stop now. And if we'd have gone ahead, it would have been so wrong. It would have been, and also the last bit is, I remember years earlier, years earlier, someone found the little recording. You know, I said in, in a Soul Survivor Festival, I said, I hope one day the Lord tells us to stop and we will stop uh, mm. because we're only here for a season to serve the church and it's a relay race and we're going to hand over the baton mm. to the next relay. And, and I, and I, the Lord said very clearly, he never said, he said, I never said I would build my soul survivor. I only said I would build my church. And we existed as a festival for, for a season to serve. And, and when, you, when you do what you're called to do, it's very satisfying to, yeah. to finish and think, we did what you told us to do, Lord. We didn't do it yeah. perfectly. We didn't do it very well, but we were obedient. Well, you did it brilliantly, actually. But but you but raising up leaders, which is what you're still doing. I mean that that is another extraordinary thing. When I when I look at what you, what all that you have done, when you think of of Matt Redman and Tim Hughes and Ben Cantillon and uh, now Andy Croft, but and a whole lot of other people, Josh Baines, our, our worship leader, and uh, Martin and Emily Lazell, all these leaders. I mean, I'm just named a few of um, of, of you know I could. The, the list is is endless but how, how do you spot these people and then raise them I mean, you know the matt redmonds and tim hughes are now sort of global names in the christian world how do you, and when you spotted them they were like teenagers um how, how do you spot these these leaders and how do you raise them up oh gosh i don't know i think um i don't know i think i mean to be honest with some of them it, it was not difficult. You know, you'd have to be, uh, for example, with Matt, he was 13 years old when I became his youth leader. And the first thing I noticed, he, he didn't even play guitar at that point. He didn't lead worship or anything, is when the youth group met and we were worshipping, I would look around and there was this kid at the back and he would be worshipping his heart out. He would be, and it's like, if you want to know how to spot a worship leader, find the ones that are worshipping at the back. If they're worshipping at the back, they'll worship at the front. 
they're not worshipping at the back. Giving them a guitar or a keyboard isn't going to make them a worship leader, just a song mm. leader. And I saw it in Matt and I started to get to know him. And, and honestly, there was a depth to him and there was a longing for Jesus. And, um, and so we encouraged him to start playing guitar and, and, and all of that. And, you know, the rest is the story. And the same with a number of them. But I think the other thing is that I think there are lots and lots of young people and young adults with massive potential that is not obvious and we miss it and what i love about our lord jesus is he did not pick for his disciples what any consultancy would have suggested him to pick they would in never ever they would never have got got through a rigorous um uh finding a job process they would never have got through, but he saw something. He saw what they could be. And I think one of the things is seeing people with humble, teachable hearts. You know, if they've got humble, teachable hearts, then, you know, they, they'll grow in the right. And, and the thing is, is encouragement is massive, is massive. So many young people, young adults, potential young leaders, it's there. All they need is encouragement to fan it into flame. And the tragedy is many of them, many of them don't have that. And just a bit would give them confidence. And, and you see that with, you know, Saul became Paul and look at his ministry. But what was the secret humanly? It was a guy called Barney. And this son of encouragement saw Paul and saw what no one else saw. You know, he went to the apostles when they, the church in Jerusalem was rejecting Paul and frightened of him, and he put his reputation on the line, and Barnabas said, accept this guy, take my word for it. And then later on, he went and found him. He went and found him, and he took him. He took him to Antioch, and he spent a couple of years investing in him. And then he had the humility, Barney, uh, to play second fiddle to the guy that he'd invested in. I mean, the story, the story of Barnabas should be a story that every Christian leader yeah. should lap up. It's our template. And that, that, it's, not, it's not rocket science. It's just that, I think. But it, I mean, you not only do you encourage them, but you also train them. You teach them, you teach them how to, when they're leading worship, you teach them how to read the room. I mean, I would, how do you teach them that? How do you read the room anyway? When well, leading I, I think you, you start, I've always worked very, with worship leaders, I've always worked very closely with them. And so I'll, I'll read the room with them. And, and how do you, and how do you, I mean, like reading the room means, I guess, identify what is the Holy Spirit doing in the yeah. room at this moment? How do you, how do you see what the Holy Spirit is doing in the, I mean, like you're looking around at, at 30, well, not 30,000 at one time, but like t over 10,000 young people. How do you read, or in a church with a, with a few hundred, how do you read what the Holy Spirit is doing? The mistake lots of people make is when they say, Lord, what are you doing? Is the mistake they make, and I'm going to say it bluntly, Go on. Um, is they look up. And don't look up, look out. Because the Holy Spirit's doing it there, 
I mean, the Holy Spirit's always at work in heaven, but we want to see what he's doing there. And the way Jesus said um, in John 5, I only do what I see my father doing. Hmm. That was true for Jesus. I know Jesus was unique and he was talking uniquely, but also he is, as well as being unique, there's an element where he's a model for us. And so, Father, what are you doing? I want to see it, so I'll look, and I'll look out there. And what it is, it's it's learning. It's learning to track what the Spirit's doing. And and um, I, I, I cannot, I, the best way is if I give you a couple of examples. Yes, go on. How I was taught. I was taught um, by this this a guy called Blaine Cook, um, who's a very dear friend. And yeah, Blaine, I know Blaine. Blaine worked with John Wimber for, for years. Um, and I remember when I first saw Blaine ministering, you know, it was, oh, my goodness. How, do, <laughs> yeah. how does that happen? Yeah, I remember. And, then, and then I invited Blaine. No, so I invited, I got to know Blaine a bit. And uh, I thought, right, I want to find out. I want to find the secret of what he's got. So um, I invited myself to go and stay with him and his wife, Becky, in California. And I took Matt and Beth Redman with me. We went, we stayed in their house and I found the secret. If it moved, he laid hands on it. <laughs> I mean, it's the truth. We, we, he, he drove us from um, where he lived in Laguna Hills to Anaheim, about a 30 minute journey. And I, no lie, as he was driving, um, uh, Beth said to Matt, uh, Matt, have you got an aspirin? And Blaine said, what? why do you need an aspirin? She said, oh, I've got a bit of a headache. Well, we're not having that. One hand on the steering wheel, the other hand <laughs> left on Beth for healing. Then I coughed and he said, oh, what's that? I said, oh, I've got a bit of a cough. Laid hands on me. <laughs> Before we got to Anaheim, he'd laid hands on all three of us. And I asked, I asked Blaine once, I said, Blaine, why is it that God seems to do a lot more when you pray than when I pray. And he said, are you ready for the answer? Do you honestly want the answer? I said, yes. He said, number one, I have a high expectation that God will use me. You don't. Ouch. And he said, secondly, I made an agreement with the Lord that if I thought he was telling me something, I would not censor it. And I would not uh, put it through the grid of my common sense in, in the wrong way and say, oh, no, that's too risky. I made an agreement that I would go and say whatever I thought he was saying. And then towards the beginning of our Soul Survivor Festivals, I invited him. And at the beginning, I would, even when I spoke, I'd say, Blaine, come and, come and lead ministry. And then there was this one time uh, I said, after I speak, would you come and lead ministry? And he said, no. And I was like, we've paid your airfare. You know? <laughs> he said, no, that's not my role. You, you need to be doing that. That's your, yeah. you should be doing that. And he said, what I'll do is I'll come up and I'll coach you. So yeah. after I spoke, he came up and he hid. There was a big speaker and he stood behind the speaker and he said, now, Mike, what I want you to do is get everyone to stand, invite the Holy Spirit to come and then wait until I tell you to stop waiting. And what I used to do is I used to say, come Holy Spirit, wait the obligatory six or seven seconds and then invite people to respond to something that had been in the talk. 
And we waited and he didn't say anything. And he said, now Mike, look around, see if you can see what the father's doing. Just look mm. around. And I thought the father's not doing anything. And there were, at that time, there were maybe three, 4,000 in the room. And he said, it's okay, Mike, you're doing really well. And I was panicking. I was thinking, do you realize they're British kids? They're going to start going back to their tents. They're not going to, you know, you've got to do something. And then after way past when it was comfortable, he said, now, Mike, I'm going to help you. Now, do you see if you go middle right, um, third block, just have a look. And no one could hear. He only whispered it to me. And he, no one could hear. He said, just look. That in, a, in a few moments, the Holy Spirit's going to start resting on people there. I looked. Within a moment, I saw someone began to shake. A few began to weep. Someone else slid to the ground. And it was like, oh, wow. And then he said, now, now just look up there. Look up on the balcony. And he said, do you see the girl at the front of the second from the end row um, with the green, wearing the green top, the Holy Spirit's about to come upon her. As I looked, there was evidence that the Lord was meeting her. And then he said, now you can speak. Now you can speak. You wait for the Spirit and then you speak. And I've learned, um, and I don't do it very well, but I've learned to say always, Lord, what are you doing I want to do what I want to join in with you because hmm. honestly, Nikki, I wasted too much of my life telling the Lord what I was going to do and asking. <laughs> it's so much more fun finding out what He's doing and joining in with Him. And so sometimes it'll be, um, I'm, for example, I might see someone just, I might just notice someone quietly weeping, and then I'll quietly say to the Lord, Lord, is that just someone weeping or is there something you're doing? Lord, if that's you could, you, could you show me one or two others? And then I'd look round, and to my astonishment, gosh, there's someone there and someone there. Like, if, what you're doing with the one, are you doing with the many? And then it would be, um, Lord, are they weeping for themselves? Or is it intercession? Is it for others? And, and it would be, I think you're saying it's, it's healing. And then I'd say, if you're feeling like you, you're just weeping inside and you're not even sure what it is, but you just feel God's love resting on you and there's something, come forward. And I would be astonished. Oh my goodness. Well, I never, that really hmm. was you. And when that happens lots of times, yeah. you're, always, you're always in awe, but you're less surprised because you've seen him do that and it'll happen in different ways so it's always i have my my favorite place my my you know was it eric liddell um he yeah. said um the he chariots of fire yeah. he said when i run i feel god's pleasure yeah now we all find our sweet spot yeah in that we feel god's pleasure and yeah yours won't be the same as mine and mine won't be the same as matt redmond's or whoever's yeah. my my when i stand in front of people and invite the holy spirit to come and wait i feel god's pleasure huh. that's the happiest that's the happiest place in my entire life because i'm saying well, Lord, here we are again, and um, 
either either you do something or I'm in big trouble. And I'm very small, God. I feel really small right now, but you're really big. And um, go on, hold, hold my hand. Hold my hand. I depend on you. And that time of waiting is the most intimate time that I have with the Lord. Now, for evangelists, it's that moment when they're preaching the gospel and they invite a response. For pastors, <clears throat> it's when, you know, it's, it's when people come through. For teachers, it's when they've exposited a great Bible passage as well as they could. Mine is that. Sorry, that was a very long answer, but there you no, go. No, it's, it's so fascinating because I, I've watched you do it so many times. Um, and, and then we all have our go at doing it. And it, it, we think it's like, you know, it's like watching the master at work and you've just sort of, uh, it, it's something, I guess we all aspire to, to lead ministry like the way that you do, but it's, it's one of those things that you might think, that it, it's it's so much more difficult than it, than it looks in some ways. It's like uh, those of you who've been trying for a few years know it's actually really hard to see what the Holy Spirit is doing. You, but you, for you, it's such a gift that you can see it. Uh, for those of us who, who don't particularly have that gift, but believe in it passionately, we just have to stumble along and do our do our thing. But I, I, I will never stop praying, "Come, Holy Spirit," because I believe that the Holy Spirit comes when I when we pray that prayer. Um, but I, I don't find it easy to see, like, around the room. Uh, you know, I can see what God is doing. I have a look around, I think, I'm not seeing very much. Yeah. The thing is, though, Nikki, is often, and this is the truth, I feel I'm stumbling. But <clears throat> the only other thing I'd say is, for me, I had to come to the place where my longing to see him move was greater than my fear of failure and looking yeah. stupid. Because of my background, because of my upbringing, I was I was just desperate not to be humiliated anymore. Yeah, I, I just don't want to be humiliated. And I had to. We all have different things, different mountains that need yeah. moving, and that was mine. And I had to come to the place of, Lord, if I make an absolute twit of myself, I I want to do it as worship for you. I want to say my longing to see you move. Is, is more than now than my fear of failure. And that actually is a bizarrely liberating thing. Yeah. Um, that, was, that was for me. It, it, I mean, it's different for all of us. And, and I think s some people, it it's comes more naturally than for others. But I, I just think a lot of it is, 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 is learning. And it's not learning to be super spiritual. I think it's learning to make space. You know, I, I, I say to our worship leaders, um, you know, our, our Tom Smith now, he's, you know, when he came, when, when he first joined us, you know, he, he won't mind me saying this, Tom was great on the celebration and the, the dancing around and everything. Um, but there, was, there wasn't a lot of waiting and there wasn't a lot of making space. Now he is, humanly speaking, the utter genius uh, you know, there are, there are times towards the end of the worship where I can see him making space. And when, when there's space, you know, be still and know that I am God. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. I, I think we've got to learn a lot from our Catholic brothers and sisters 
about contemplation, stillness and silence. And I think, and our Quaker ancestors as well, I think there's something about that. You know, in our evangelical or charismatic circles, we're, we're by nature activists. And, and just to make space, I love the Quaker story. They used to meet and they would wait and no one would speak until the Holy Spirit prompted them. And, and you know, the, they, the, the term Quaker for the Society of Friends was a term of abuse. It was, oh, they're Quakers, because they would quake when the Holy Spirit came. And it became a badge of honor. Um, and I know there's a balance because, you know, the one thing that can happen in ministry times is, is it can get so, it can get so charismatic culturally, and I, this isn't as a meaning as a negative, that actually we forget that there might be non-Christians there yeah. or people on the fringe. So my job, God's job is to move because I can't do that. My job is to pastor people while he moves. And so, and so a lot of it is explaining, is demythologizing, is, is not going on forever, you know? And the secret of Paul, I think, you get Paul's writings when you understand at heart he was an evangelist. So in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, you know, he was saying, use the gifts. I thank my God, I speak in tongues more than you all. When you prophesy, do it like this. But he kept saying, when, if, you, if you do crazy stuff, when an unbeliever comes, they'll be left out. They won't understand. They'll think you're mad. You know, keep thinking of those on the edge. And that is one of the great gifts that you guys have given the wider church and understanding um, just by your faithfulness and by the, the longevity of Alpha and what you do on Sundays, it's the understanding that, that we make a contract with those who aren't yet Christians. And if we say this, the meeting's going to be an hour and 15 minutes, we honour them by keeping it an hour and 15 minutes. You know, we, you don't invite people to Sunday lunch as a family and then all talk as a family in your own language you you you're always thinking of them and we need to get that balance of openness to the spirit fidelity to the word but also the word and the spirit are both about proclaiming christ and if if our spiritual experiences mask jesus in our meetings we've missed it completely the spirit really? comes to the church on the way to the world brilliant it's brilliant mate and mate so i mean soul survivor was in the uk but also it was all around the world you traveled to australia and singapore and malaysia and the us you've been you've been and this is sort of and across europe it's, it's spread all over the world and you're you you spend a lot of your life on an airplane um and i know at some point on your in your life you decided i because you could have got married. I know you're, you're far too modest to say it, but lots of lots of people were saying, like, "Oh, we want to marry Mike Pilavacci. Um, But you made a decision at some point that you you were going to be celibate. That must have been a really hard decision. Uh, no, it actually, it's funny. It wasn't. It wasn't. I wanted to get married. I thought I would get married, but because of my brokenness in my teenage and early adult years, 
I was hopeless at relationships. I was hope, hopeless. I ruined them all. I wasn't <laughs> any, but those that there were, I ruined. And then there was the last, the last kind of time I thought there might be a possibility without going into any details whatsoever was when I was in my early 30s. Hmm. And then it didn't happen. And then I remember I came to a place where I, sun, I just I suddenly, whether it was me thinking it or the Lord saying it, sometimes you don't know, to be honest, mm. where it was either I'm going to spend, waste more years waiting for something that might happen or might not happen, or I can, I can give my everything to the life I've got mm. and put it all in and for him and give it all and trust him with the rest. And so I decided to do that. And I think there's two, so there's two lessons I've learned. There's two mistakes we make, those of us that are Christian and single. Um, the first one is we can waste our lives waiting for someone to come along to get married and then our life will be great. Our life will be perfect. I know too many married friends who love their husbands and wives and love their kids, but life isn't perfect. You know, life is tough. Um, and it doesn't answer everything. And so we can waste our time waiting for something that might, might not happen. Or the other mistake, and I've made both mistakes, and the second one is, um, you know, thinking, getting selfish in your singleness. And I did that. I remember uh, I was talking to a friend some years ago and saying, I'm so glad I'm not married. Um, it, was, it was actually... Um, uh, uh, Steve, who, who's been leading the Evangelical Alliance till recently, and um, he was working with us. He was chair of our leadership team. And, um, you know, I'm so glad I'm single. I look at my married friends and they have to be in by six. <laughs> they have, to have tea at a certain time. They end up going on holiday to centre parks. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm so glad I'm free. I can spend my money on whatever I want. I can do whatever I want. I can stay out if I want. I can come in when I want. I can go on holiday anywhere I want. And Steve just listened to me. And then after a while, he said very quietly, it must be wonderful to be that selfish. And it was like, oh, a dagger in my heart. And I just, through that conversation, I felt the Lord saying, Mike, whether you're, Married or single and celibate, whichever it is, you give everything to him and to his people. And so I made a decision. I would, I would open my home whenever I could. I would, I would serve it, you know, and, and honestly, that's the way to fulfillment. And, you know, I'm not saying this as a boast. I'm saying this as the grace of God. Mm. You know, I've never been married and I won't now, but I've had the joy Nikki, of being best man at 19 weddings. And yeah. I got to be father of the bride once, one of the happiest days of my life. You know, uh, it was actually Matt Redmond's sister, Sarah, hmm. who I'm still very, very close to. And, you know, um, Sarah's dad died when she, was, when she was one. And so she never knew him. And um, when she was 21, I think it was, she came to see me and she said, Dave's asked me to marry him. Will you be my dad on my wedding day? And I said, seriously, Sarah? And she said, you've forgotten what I told you when I was 12, haven't you? And I said, remind me. And she said, when I was 12, I said to you, if I ever get married, I want you to be my dad on my wedding day 
because you're the nearest thing I've ever had to a dad. Oh. I mean, honestly, Nikki, it was one of the happiest days of my life, walking oh. her down the aisle, giving the father of the bride speech. Oh. And, you know, it was just, what a gift. And I never have children, but I've got godchildren coming out my ears. <laughs> yeah, I, I love it. And, and in this lockdown, I'll just say this, you know, I am helping out um, Andy and Beth Croft. Yeah. And, and so, oh, am I sacrificing? Because I sacrificed by going to join them for Christmas Day. Mm. And I sacrificed every, every afternoon. Andy or Beth brings some of the kids round so that, you know, they can get them out and split, split off. And I'll do Lego with Judah or I'll play flicking the light switch with Zach, who's one, or whatever. And, you know, oh, what a sacrifice. I'm helping them out. Honestly, you know the answer. Yeah, it's the amazing family. Life. I couldn't, it fulfills me. I love that family. I love those kids. Caleb. And, oh, Caleb. Caleb. Caleb, bless him. An absolute joy. An absolute yeah. joy. And, and I couldn't ask for more. I couldn't ask for more. So God is no person's debtor. And whether we're married or single, this is what Paul says to the Corinthians. Give, give the one life you've got everything you've got. And I really have a high view of marriage. I really believe it's the most wonderful thing. But the, the good thing about, for some, the gift of celibacy, for some, is it means we can do things that yeah. if you were married with kids, it would be sin. But for, for me, I could spend half my year in different countries. If I had a family, that would be wrong. Yeah. I think. Anyway, yeah. sorry, another yeah. line. But, but no, but it's, I mean, Mike, I've heard you. Um, I, I, I mean, one of the best wedding talks I've ever heard you gave all about marriage. I thought that was extraordinary that you could speak about marriage in that way. Uh, I was just the most brilliant wedding. Uh, I, um, how many weddings have you spoken at? Must be, you've got tw 19 times you've been best man. I mean, how many wedding talks have you given? Oh my goodness. Well, Hundreds. Not hun I've only been ordained for six, seven years. So it, it, a, a few, a few, a few, but I, I, I love it. I love your it. In your insights into marriage are extraordinary. Well, only because I observed. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, um, you know, you, well, like you, Nikki, you, you know, you, you hear people's stories and you, you go on a journey with them and it's like, oh my word, I don't know that I've got particularly, I just, my friends who are married are honest with me. But, and Mike, anyone listening to this and listening to your talk will be, will be struck. You know, Humility is a funny thing, isn't it? Because if you feel it, then you, you haven't got it, but but will have been struck. I can tell you by your your extraordinary humility and the humility that's required to do what you do, which is to stand up there and say, because as you go on, it, it, I don't know what you find, but, but but I mean that I think is extraordinary about you that you haven't done this because I think as we get older, you don't want to take risks because you sort of you know you've sort of established certain things and you think oh the, the risks that I, I took will have taken in ministry like 20 years ago I don't think I'm taking them anymore and that's but you carried on taking those risks and you've you've got the humility I mean it's an extraordinary combination that you have of 
humility and humor you know that's and in a way they go together i guess but but there's always when anyone's around you there's always lots of i mean soul survivor was just people roaring with laughter you you self-deprecating humor uh it's all like part of it and how, how have you kept that because so, so much of the christian world becomes very intense and you've managed to avoid any of that intensity oh nikki i, I don't know that I struggle with all that just as much as everyone else is the honest truth. I think one of the things is I have, I have friends around me who if they ever um, see me getting a little bit pompous, they're very quick to burst my balloon. I mean, it's always been like that. And, and that really, really helps. Can I just tell you one little story? It's, it's, I love it. I love it. It was um, years ago, and um, with um, I, the first time I went to South Africa with Matt, and Matt was 20, I think, and he just he'd been leading worship, but he wasn't very well known then. But he was, and he'd been in my youth group when he was 13, so you know I was his leader, and uh, we we did a meeting in a tent in Durban near Durban, and Matt led worship, and when he finished, I got up to speak. And the South Africans had never heard me before. And so they loved my jokes. And they loved them so much that I just told <laughs> all my best jokes. And I gave all my best illustrations. And I just, they were roaring with laughter. They were falling on the floor. And when I finished, I went and sat next to Matt. And he turned to me and he said very quietly, um, how did you think that went? And I said, oh, I think it went pretty well. I think I engaged with them. I think I connected. I mean, yeah. He went, oh. And there was this silence. And I thought, there's something wrong here. And I said, how did you think it went? And he said, honestly, Mike, um, their laughing and their response went to your head. And you ended up losing, um, um, what was the phrase, um, uh, you know, losing the plot and it became more about you than it did about Jesus and what did you actually say about Jesus in between the jokes and there and then I was very close to murdering him <laughs> then I slept on it and I woke up in the morning and I thought you are absolutely right yeah. and I thanked him and I thought and I, and I thought what what would I do without friends who say yeah. things like that. And he said it kindly, as he always does. He said it gently, but he said it firmly. And it was as soon as it was like, you're right. And when you have people around you who, who tell you the truth, you know, you, you can't, and, and who are any of us in comparison to him, eh? Mm. You know, he, he's the star. And what do you think he's up to now? What's going on in the world now? What's happening? What has God up to? I don't know. I, I mean, it's a very interesting question. I think, I think the darkness is getting darker. Um, and I pray that the light is getting lighter. Mm. Um, I think on, on the world stage, I really worry. I, I have to be honest, it breaks my heart. Some of the things that have been going on in the States. And I do worry for the, the, the just, it feels like there's two sides that aren't even speaking the same language hmm. and i worry about the rise of extremism 
in our world and you don't know where that might lead and now is the time now is the time as it always is in moments of crisis for the church of jesus to rise up and be a witness to an alternative kingdom and i i just want to give my remaining years just serving the church as as much as i possibly can to be a people who who love him who love one another and who love his world and where there is great acceptance and great we, we we rejoice with those who rejoice and we weep with those who weep and you know as we do that i think people who are broken and i think out of this covid situation we're going to have a lot of broken people in this yeah. country who oh, are not yeah. and w- we need to be a place that they know is a safe place. We mm. need to be a place where, where they know, they just know that they will be loved and accepted. And, and I think one of our little sayings is we want to have the highest um, moral standards that Jesus taught, but also the deepest level of compassion that Jesus showed to mm. all those who could not keep the highest standards that he taught. Yeah, that adultery was wrong. He loved the woman caught in adultery. He went for the Samaritan woman at the well who was on her fifth man, you know, sixth man. You know, he, he, he went for the broken. He was attracted to broken people. And we need to display that in the way. And yeah. I mean, again, you know, I've just been reading, I just got through the post, the actual copy of, um, it's there somewhere. Um, I've forgotten his name now. The guy that... Michael Emmett? Oh, Michael Emmett. What a book. What a book. <laughs> what a testimony. And it's like, it's like we, we, we gotta, we've got to lay down our, Pharisaic, our Pharisaical bit, you know, and we just got to love people where they are. Um, um, I, I just tell you one, more, one little story, one little story from our church, which I love. Um, we have some um, uh, connect groups, uh, which are recovery groups for people recovering from alcoholism, drug addiction, gambling addiction, addiction, all that. And I, it was a while ago now, but um, before a morning service, um, what the leader of one of the recovery groups said, um, I, I'll call her Alice. Um, he said, um, this, is the first, this is the first anniversary that Alice has been alcohol and drug free. And today's the first anniversary. So in the notices, I took a risk. I said, in our church, we celebrate people's achievements. And I said, Alice, would you stand up? And she stood up. And I said, today is the first anniversary that Alice has been alcohol and drug free. The whole church erupted. I mean, clapping and cheering. And I watched Alice's face as she was surrounded by people cheering her. And the, the look on her face, and this is the amazing thing. The following Wednesday, I had an email from another lady in our church. She said, you're not going to believe this, but I brought to church for the first time on Sunday morning um, uh, uh, my, my stepsister, and my stepsister um, has been seven months off alcohol abuse. She's alcoholic. And when you did that for Alice, my stepsister, who's not a Christian, she turned to me and she said, she was started crying. And she said, is that what you do in your church? 
you celebrate people like me. You celebrate people like me. And do you know, it's like, I want to shout to the world, that's exactly what the church does. That's what we're a place. You know, Jesus was called friend of sinners. What a title. They, they said it, they said it as an, a friend of sinners. Oh, what a badge of honor. What a flipping badge mm. of honor. Mm. I'll finish with this, this one. Years ago, years ago, I went um, to um, a church in Melbourne, Australia. And it was a church, uh, they, one of my old friends had joined the church and he said, you've got to come, it's amazing. And it was in the red light district of Melbourne. It was in a, a really bad place. And, and he said, they, they, um, they exist for prostitutes and for drug addicts and drug dealers and people who are into terrible, you know, difficult stuff. And he said, they planted the church for them and they're reaching out to them. And I went there and it was amazing because it was these people that get, they brought their families, you know, to that area to witness. And there were people who were recovering from everything and some who were not yet recovering. And, you know, one of the best things about that, that I love, I'll never forget, was the name of that church. And if I ever, if, I don't think I will at my age, but if I ever could plant another church myself, I'd give the church this name. They called the church Matthew's Party. Hmm. What a great name. Matthew, the sinner, when he met Jesus, he threw a party for all his sinner friends, for all his drunken friends, for all, his, all of that. And Jesus was the guest of honor and he hmm. went to the party. What hmm. a name for the church. And the truth is, Nikki, we know this, but we're all broken. Mm. So it's not, I can't look down on him. I'm, I'm carrying my scars. I'm carrying my brokenness. I walk with a limp. I struggle with things. We all do. We all do. We're all, and, and we're all sinners saved by grace. Mm. So let's show grace. And I think if, if the church of Jesus comes out of this committed committed to doing those things i think we can be such a light on the hill brilliant mike well thanks mike for joining us for this episode next week we're going to be sharing a conversation between nikki and jackie pullinger over 50 years ago jackie boarded a ship moving port to port because god called her to go Fast forward to today, and Jackie is a well-known missionary in China and beyond who's inspired so many with her life. We look forward to sharing that conversation with you on February 14th. Well, before I let you go, please give us a like or review or hit subscribe if you haven't yet. And if you were encouraged by what Mike had to share, we'd love for you to send this episode to someone who you think might need to hear it. Thanks again for tuning in. Bye for now.